Again, thank you, Emily, for leading us today in worship. And, uh, <clears throat> and thank you, Bill Nichols. Um, I don't think I've ever thought of God loves a fearful giver. <clears throat> that was pretty good. And, uh, and if any of you would like to go and put money in the offering plate that Bill has, just feel free to do that. And we'll trust Bill. He used to be on the staff of this church, so we'll let him handle that. So you know that uh, our theme for this year is why does it matter? And we have just been walking through a journey together. Every season we've looked at something different about that question. So for the summer, eternity. Why does it matter? And y'all know, unless, you're ha unless you haven't been here in the last few weeks, you know that our theme verse for the summer is John 3, 16. We'd love for you to pick up one of these signs if you haven't gotten one already. And we want you to take photos with this sign wherever you happen to go this summer. And we want you to send those to fbca.org slash John 316. And we're going to have some fun with them later in the summer, the different photos that you send us where all you are. And also, it's our hope that um, if you'll get someone else to take your photo, they may ask you why in the world are you getting your picture made with that sign, and to give you a chance to share with them the truth of John 3, 16, and continue to develop our evangelistic sensitivity as a church. You also know that uh, during the week, after we've had the message on Sunday, in our podcast, Tell Me More, uh, Katie Hodges and Luke Stair and I have a conversation, uh, a deeper conversation about the sermon that I've shared on Sunday morning. So wherever you find podcasts, you can go and find Tell Me More. And I would love for you to be a part of that and interact with us as we have deeper conversations uh, about the issues that we're addressing on Sunday morning. So with that said, let's look at today's message. I've entitled it, A New Heaven and a New Earth. The text is found in the book of Revelation. So if you have your copy of the New Testament, look with me at Revelation 21. We looked at Revelation 20 last Sunday. And today I want us to look at that very next page, Revelation 21. We'll begin in verse 1, where John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death." Well, this incredible vision <clears throat> John receives about heaven is recorded here in Revelation 21. But I think here's the challenge that we face in our society today, and maybe we faced it for a long time. We're not that certain about heaven. 
And there are many questions about what we are going to do in heaven and how could there possibly be anything that we could enjoy forever? Is that actually possible? Is, I guess the question is, is heaven going to be boring? You remember last week I told you that one of my favorite cartoonists, of course, after Charles, Charles Schultz and Peanuts, is Gary Larson. Gary Larson, in his uh, comic strip, The Far Side, he had numerous um, cartoons about hell. He also has some about heaven. So let me show you one of his about heaven this morning that I think captures how many of us feel. <clears throat> I don't know if y'all can see this or not, but here's a guy in heaven, now winged as an angel, sitting on a cloud, thinking, wish I'd brought a magazine. <clears throat> is that how it's going to be? Is, is, is heaven going to be just this disembodied kind of floating, eternally aimless experience? Well, I mentioned Mark Twain last week. Let me read to you a quote from The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn about heaven. Here's what Huckleberry Finn had to say. Miss Watson, she went on and told me all about the good place. She said all a body would have to do there was go around all day long with a harp and sing forever and ever. So I didn't think much of it. I asked her if she reckoned Tom Sawyer would go there and she said not by a considerable sight. <clears throat> I was glad about that because I wanted him and me to be together. <clears throat> well, um, obviously what you probably know is that's not really Huckleberry Finn's voice, that's Mark Twain's take on how heaven has been portrayed. So, think about it. What is it going to be like? Uh, I, I can't answer every question today about heaven. Here's what I really want to do is just help us to get just a, a little bit of a grip on what I believe the Bible teaches about heaven. And I don't know what you have in your mind, but I do know that some people have this sense about heaven that I think needs to at least be addressed and hopefully corrected. For example, some people think we're going to all turn into angels when we get to heaven. That is just not what the Bible teaches. We're not going to turn into angels. Some people view us as having these disembodied spirits that we we won't have bodies anymore. Well, that's just not the truth. Some people think it's going to be a forever church service when we get to heaven. Lord help us is what some people think about that <laughs> because their question is, what's the service going to be like? Is it going to be all music or all preaching? Well, I would say it probably depends on whether you wound up in heaven or hell. I guess that just depends. <laughs> In my opinion, it would be all preaching, just being honest. <clears throat> what is it going to be like? I mean, are we all going to play harps? Um, I mean, I, is there going to be anything to do in heaven? Or are we going to be eternally twiddling our thumbs? Well, let's just have a conversation this morning. Like I said, I can't answer every question, but I do want to point us all to some realities, I think, that are revealed in the Scripture. So let's just start with the reality of heaven. And that is that we believe 
in heaven. Clint Eastwood said one time that they say marriages are made in heaven, but so is thunder and lightning. <clears throat> and then, of course, the world-famous theologian Arnold Schwarzenegger <clears throat> was interviewed last week about heaven. Did y'all see it? And basically what Schwarzenegger said was, heaven is a fantasy. He said, if you think we're going to see each other again, we won't in his conversation with Danny DeVito. Once again, I'm not sure where Arnold studied theology, but nevertheless, I would submit to us this morning that heaven is real. So we're gonna start with the reality of heaven. Let me just give you two words that are used in the New Testament, okay? The first one is the word paradise. You'll find that word in the scripture several times. And the word paradise, it actually comes from a Persian word for a nobleman's park or garden. That's what the word means. It was a, a walled garden that the Persians referred to as a place that was manicured. It was intentionally kept. It was filled with all kinds of animals and beautiful flowers and just beautiful expressions of nature, okay? So that word was co-opted into the New Testament material to refer to the place where believers go upon death. Sometimes the Jews referred to it as the bosom of Abraham. I would tell you, I think it's okay if you and I wanna call it our present heaven because it is the temporary dwelling place of the righteous, in other words, if you ask me, where does a Christian go as soon as they die? I would tell you, we go to paradise. Now, if you want to call it present heaven, I'm fine with that. But just know that it is a temporary dwelling place. It is incredibly glorious already. But it is where we go and we have some kind of bodily existence there. In other words, we're not disembodied spirits. However, the bodies that we even have in that experience are temporary as well. They're recognizable. Um, you remember when Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus? He says that the rich man is in Hades, and he looks and he sees Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham, and he recognizes him. And so we're recognizable. It is where we go. Moses and Elijah, when they appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples recognized them. And so we have this temporary, temporary bodily experience. So when we die as Christians, as I understand the teaching of the New Testament, Christians go immediately to paradise. In other words, you're immediately judged as soon as you die, did you trust Christ and follow the Lord Jesus or not? If you did, you then go to paradise. Paul says in Philippians 1, verse 23, to die is to be with Christ. What did Jesus tell the thief on the cross in Luke 23? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. Um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, some people have gotten confused about that. Because you'll read also in the New Testament where Paul will talk about people who've died as being asleep. And so some folks have concocted this view that when we die, we're unconscious. 
It's the idea of what some theologians call soul sleep. Are y'all familiar with that phrase? S-O-U-L, soul sleep. It's a total misunderstanding of the teaching of the text. When Paul uses the imagery of sleeping, he's just making a reference to death, that Christians have died. He's also referring to the temporary victory of death because when someone falls asleep, the expectation is if you wait long enough, they will what? They will wake up. And so that's the imagery that Paul uses. He's not saying that we're going to be unconscious when we die. That's just not consistent with what we know about the teachings in the scripture. It's not what Jesus taught us, not what Paul taught us. It just means that death has a temporary hold on us and one day will be defeated. I remember years ago, I was preaching a, a, a um, Easter sunrise service in a little country church. Praise God we don't have those anymore, by the way. But nevertheless, <clears throat> don't get that in your mind if you're thinking about it. But we used to have them. And, and when the first one I did was in a cemetery, which I thought was quite fascinating. And I said that to one of my deacons who was standing next to me, a farmer. And we were waiting on the sun to rise. And I said, quite ironic, don't you think? He said, what do you mean? I said, having an Easter service in the cemetery. He said, the way I figure it, on the day of the resurrection, this would be the busiest place in town. <clears throat> well, that's good theology for a farmer. So death, sleeping, is a reference to the temporary nature of death. Then there's the word heaven, uranos in Greek. That word's found over 200 times in the New Testament. That's the word for heaven. That's the word for our eternal heaven. Paradise is this present heaven. So if someone says, man, my, my father died or my mom died or whoever it is, and are they in heaven? Well, if you want to call paradise our present heaven, yes. But heaven, Uranus, that is our permanent, eternal destination. That is where God chooses to dwell. It is a whole nother dimension. It is beyond our experience. It is home to angels and and, um, all, and God's throne and celestial beings, cherubim and seraphim, ultimately it will be once God recreates everything, heaven will be the ultimate dwelling place, the final place of all of God's people. So does that make sense? Paradise is glorious, temporary. Uranus, heaven, is, is glorious and eternal. That's where we will spend eternity, okay? Now, in order for that to happen, some things have got to take place. So, for example, the resurrection from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15. If you haven't read it in a while, I would recommend it to you. 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul talks about the resurrection from the dead. He talks about our resurrected bodies. And when you read 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about how the fact the fact that we have earthly bodies right now. And Paul says these earthly bodies are perishable. They're sown in dishonor, in weakness. They're natural. It's what God has given to us. We're created in the image of God and we all have these bodies, but these bodies are perishable. They're temporary dwelling places for us. They're capable of great dishonor. They're characterized by incredible weakness. That's why there's so much brokenness in this world because they're natural bodies. And Paul says these bodies that we currently possess are not outfitted for eternity. Something's got to change. 
Now, there are some of y'all in this room right now that have lived long enough in this body that you currently have that you know good and well it ain't outfitted for eternity. <laughs> At least you hope it's not, right? Well, it just stands to reason. But Paul says, however, he then points to the resurrection of Jesus. You see, you and I are Easter people. One of the reasons we're Easter people is because something glorious happened on Easter that has yet to be repeated, but is in the future. And that is the body of the Lord Jesus was resurrected from the dead to never die again. Amen. He is the only person in history to be resurrected from the dead to never die again. Other people have been raised from the dead. Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And now, as Eugene Peterson says, he leads the resurrection parade. You and I will join that parade one day when the Lord deems fit. So when the end of time comes, our bodies will be resurrected from the dead, and this time, the bodies we receive will be imperishable. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 says. They will be raised not in dishonor, but they will not be sown in dishonor, rather. They'll be raised in glory, Paul says. They'll be raised in power, and they will be spiritual in nature. That means our bodies that we'll receive for eternity one day will be spiritual bodies. That doesn't mean that they'll cease to exist. They will be disembodied. It just means they will be different than the natural bodies we have. And these new bodies will be perfect and they will be perfectly suited for our eternal dwelling place. Well, what is our eternal dwelling place? Well, I just said it's heaven, but I want to make sure we understand what the Bible teaches us about heaven. So, some things have got to happen. One is the resurrection of the dead. Secondly, the recreation of heaven and earth has got to take place. There are three passages in your Bible that refer to it specifically. Let me point you to them. Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25. Romans 8, 18 through 25. And Revelation 21 and 22. Just in case you think this is a new idea, the recreation of heaven and earth, I would point you all the way back to Isaiah in your Old Testament. Isaiah 65, listen to verse 17. God says, see, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and a joy, and its people a joy. I'll rejoice over Jerusalem. I will take delight in my people. And he says, the sound of weeping and crying will, heard, will be heard no more. In verse 25, he says, the wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. So God gives Isaiah a vision hundreds of years before Christ that here's God's plan. He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth he has created the first heaven and the first earth for his glory. However, human beings have sinned, we have rebelled, and judgment has fallen, and the curse is a reality in God's creation. And so here on this earth, we live in brokenness and pain and loss and shame because we have lost Eden, the paradise that used to be on earth. We lost it. 
We lost it because of humanity's rebellion against God. And so we now all live east of Eden, if you will. It's no longer a reality for us. But God has chosen in his sovereignty to intervene in the midst of that brokenness and that loss. And what God says is, I'm going to recreate it all. A new heaven and a new earth. The lion, the wolf, and the lamb and the ox will lie down together, in other words. There'll be no more mourning or pain. Isaiah 65. Then you read Romans 8. Romans 8 is a powerful page in our Bibles. Remember how we talked about Romans 8 a while back and I told you that N.T. Wright loves to ask his students, I'm going to strand you on a deserted island. You can pick four pages out of your Bible. Which pages do you choose? Well, Romans 8 is just one of those pages because of the power, the testimony of the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit that's communicated in Romans 8. But here's what we read in Romans 8. Paul says, creation itself longs for its day of redemption. Paul says, even creation has been affected by the sinfulness of humanity. Creation is out of sorts. Well, look at it. Look at all the destructive experiences that we see in the natural order. Hurricanes, earthquakes, devastating disasters, disease, destruction. But the day is coming, Paul says, when even creation itself is going to be redeemed. Paul is pointing toward what Isaiah mentions in Isaiah 65. And then eventually in Revelation 21 and 22, we just read a brief portion of it a moment ago. Look back with me at Revelation 21 if you still have your Bibles open. Look at this text. Paul says, I mean, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So here's the way you and I need to think about this. There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, and the holy city, heaven itself, is going to come down from heaven to earth, and heaven and earth are going to merge together, collapse together. Eden, paradise will be restored on earth, and you and I will experience the beauty of this life that will last forever. Look at chapter 22 of Revelation. There's going to be this river, the water of life, the tree of life reappears in Revelation 22. In other words, Eden is restored now gloriously, miraculously by God, and God is now with his people. There will be no temple in the new Jerusalem because God is just present there with us. And so heaven and earth now collapse together. And so sometimes when we talk about going to heaven, we say that one day when it's all said and done, we're going to go up to heaven and experience God's glory forever when actually what's going to happen is heaven is going to come down to us and we're going to live on this new earth and this new heaven together in our resurrected, glorified bodies forever. That's going to be heaven. Heaven, some people say, so you're saying heaven's going to be on earth. Yes, but it's a new earth and a new heaven. It's not this earth. Now it'll be recognizable. Of course it will. We'll have resurrected, glorified bodies. That's the teaching of the text. And we'll experience life in this new heaven, which is really a new earth. So we won't be these disembodied spirits floating on a cloud looking for a magazine. 
No, we're going to be alive. More fully alive than we've ever been. Now, with that said, how does that new earth connect to this one? Well, that's where rewards come in. Are there going to be rewards in heaven? Yes. The Bible's clear about it. Matthew 5, verse 12. Jesus said, when you're persecuted, he says, I understand how challenging that will be, but great is your reward in heaven when you're persecuted for my sake. 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Paul says, we're all gonna appear before the judgment seat, the Bema seat of Christ, and we will receive what is due us based on what we have done in our bodies. So in other words, when you and I die, are y'all still with me? When you and I die, here's what's going to happen. When you and I die, if we die before the return of Jesus, we will face an immediate judgment when we die. Either you've accepted Jesus or you haven't. If you have accepted Jesus as your Savior and you've committed yourself to follow the way of Jesus, when you and I die, we immediately will be taken to paradise in some kind of bodily existence in glory with the Lord, with people that we know awaiting the final return of Jesus and the recreation of the heaven and the earth. Once that takes place, then there's going to be the judgment seat of Christ. We as Christians will stand before him and we will give an account, not for our eternity, that's already been decided. We will give an account for the life we lived in this body on this earth and we will be judged accordingly. And there will be rewards that will be meted out based upon how you've lived your life as a Christian. In other words, the main point is you and I need to connect how we live on this earth and how we're going to live on the new earth because they're directly linked. There will be rewards that will be meted out by God based upon how you and I followed Christ on this earth in our bodies. There will be judgment. The things that we perform in the flesh, the things that we do on our own, they'll be burned up, Paul says, like, like hay or straw. But those things that have been lived according to the teachings of the scripture, those ways that you and I have honored him and blessed him and blessed the kingdom of God, we'll receive some kind of reward. I don't fully understand it. We've misunderstood it a little bit. You know, in John 14, when, when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, he says, in my father's house, actually, here's what the Greek says, in my father's house, there are many rooms, and I'm gonna prepare one for you. Sometimes we've taken that as mansion. It's a little misunderstanding of that phrase. Rooms, in other words, God is providing accommodation for all of us and rewards will be given to us based upon how we live in this life. So if you think that you're just living your life and it has no connection to eternity, you could not be farther from the truth. Our lives will be judged based on how we live them in this body. Now, will we know each other? What about relationships in heaven? Some people think, well, when we get to heaven, we won't even know each other. You know, the Bible says there's no marriage in heaven. People won't be given in marriage. We won't even be able to relate to each other. Once again, nothing can be further from the truth when you think about relationships. We will be conscious of our own identity and we will know each other in heaven. If I knew you on this earth and you and I are in heaven together, I will know you in heaven. I will recognize you. You will recognize me. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Look at that text, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, what's our hope? What's our joy? What's our crown in the presence of the Lord when he comes? You, he says, you. What's my crown in the presence of God? 
When the Lord Jesus returns, it'll be you. What does he say in 1 Thessalonians 4? He said, I don't want you to be ignorant about our brothers and sisters who've fallen asleep. One day the Lord Jesus is going to return and those who are asleep are going to be raised and we will all meet Christ in the air and together we will be with him forever. In other words, we're going to know each other. You know, the disciples, when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration, they recognized Moses and, uh, and Elijah. Well, deep friendships, new friendships will be forged in heaven. And you and I will know each other and we'll be conscious of each other. Now, we'll be relating on a different level. And the only marriage you will need in heaven is the marriage between the bride and the groom. That's the people of God and the Lord Jesus. That will enrich every other experience that we will ever know. So, let me see if I can sum it up real quick. Real life in heaven. Here's the deal. Heaven and earth are going to merge together when God recreates it all. And then you and I will then live on earth, this glorified new earth with our resurrected bodies and we will be perfect, we will be redeemed, we will be restored, there will be no sin, no temptation, no loss, no sickness, no disease, no hatred, no jealousy, no blame, no pettiness, no shame. Are y'all still with me? No hurt, no death, no mourning, no separation from one another. We will be fully alive in our new bodies on this heavenly earth. We will be forever growing, living in fellowship. We'll have meaningful work to do. Think about your most productive day you've ever had in your life on this earth, in your body. Multiply that exponentially. That's how productive you're going to be in glory. Think about your deepest, most meaningful experience you've ever had on this earth. Multiply that exponentially. That's what experiences are going to be like for you in heaven. Think about your greatest rest, the time when you felt most rested in your life. That's what you're going to experience if you multiply that exponentially in glory. Think about the greatest joy you have ever known on this earth. Multiply that exponentially. That's what you're going to have forever. Think about the deepest sense of love you have ever experienced in your life on this earth. Multiply that exponentially. That's what you're going to have in heaven. Have you ever stood in awe of the majesty of God's creation? Can you imagine sunsets in heaven if you think sunsets on earth are awesome? Here's the thing, y'all. It's going to be real. You don't want to miss it. It is going to be the most glorious, incredible, life-giving, eternal, eternally productive, meaningful, fun, lack of shame experience we've ever had. You know why? Because finally, finally, everything and everybody will be under the reign of God. And he will reign perfectly and gloriously and powerfully and personally and joyfully and majestically and comprehensively and eternally. The kingdom of God finally will be fully manifested for all of God's people to enjoy. And you and I, the last thing we're going to be is bored. It's like C.S. Lewis said, it's like reading a book where every chapter is better than the one you just read. 
And so if you can imagine the contrast between heaven and hell. Heaven will be for us eternally moving more toward a deep, rich, meaningful, productive, glorious relationship with one another and God. Living more fully in the purposes that God's designed for every one of us, matching our rewards and our passions and our uniqueness in ways we could never imagine for eternity, constantly, gloriously, eternally moving toward him and all that he would design for humanity. Hell, hell is going to be filled with people who are eternally separated from God and every single day moving further and further and further and further and further away from all that God planned and all that God desired and all that God hoped for them and that will take place forever. You talk about torment and isolation and loneliness and nothingness and meaninglessness, that will be hell. You and I will experience the exact opposite, something so much greater than we could ever imagine. That's why not only do you not want to miss it, you don't want anybody you know to miss it. And so let's you and I, first of all, embrace the glory and the majesty of heaven. And then let's let it be a longing in us, and then let it propel us to share the beauty of it with people right now who need just a taste of it in their lives, because that's what we've got. We've got, we've got just a taste of it, but can you imagine what it's going to be like one day? One day. Hallelujah. May it be so. Let's pray. Lord, we we always bow humbly before you, and we certainly do today. Lord, as we think about the truth, the reality of heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for showing us a glimpse of heaven. Thank you for giving that vision to John, speaking powerfully to Isaiah, communicating through Paul these truths. And certainly, Lord, thank you for the testimony of the Lord Jesus I pray that our understanding, our vision of heaven will capture us and we'll be mindful of it and we'll long for it and we'll desire that we bring as many people as possible with us <laughs> so that we can all experience your glory and your presence and your purpose forever. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.